Bienvenidos a La Raza Chronicles. Welcome to Crónicas de la Raza. On tonight's program, we will hear from Almadelia, a woman who was just reunited with her husband who was being held in a detention center. They were united with the help of the County Detention Facility Community Fund. We'll also speak with Edgar Torres about the many ways to take advantage of Latin American Latino Studies classes and much more at City College of San Francisco. And last but definitely not least, I'll speak with Imogene Tondre about her book, Cuba, the Cookbook. Cuban food is known worldwide for its blend of bright colors and intense flavors, and Cuba, the Cookbook, is the first book to celebrate and document comprehensively its cuisine and contemporary food culture. All this and much more, stay tuned. On July 10th of this year, the Contra Costa County Sheriff's Office announced that it is ending its contract with ICE, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement, to detain immigrants at the West County Detention Facility in Richmond. This is a big victory for activists who've been holding vigils and protests outside the Richmond jail for at least eight years, long before the current wave of escalations and demonstrations hit the media. But this good news has potentially bad consequences for immigrants currently detained in the facility and their families. The sheriff and ICE officials have been moving swiftly to transfer people to other facilities, some much further from their families, attorneys, and support communities. In response, the Bay Area-based Freedom for Immigrants has launched the West County Detention Facility Community Fund to bail out immigrants before they can be moved. Funds are also used to help families with travel and phone costs. Rebecca Merton is the National Visitation Coordinator for Freedom for Immigrants. Rebecca, Freedom for Immigrants has been around since 2012, but many of us are only hearing about it now. Your mission statement says, Freedom for Immigrants is devoted to abolishing immigration detention while ending the isolation of people currently suffering in this profit-driven system. How did the organization get started? Freedom for Immigrants actually got started when Christina Mansfield and Christina Fialo started visiting people in immigration detention at the West County Detention Facility and saw the need for a network of visitation groups around the country to provide support to people in immigration detention and monitor the conditions in detention with the goal of shining a light on the abuses inside of these facilities. We have a network of over 50 affiliated visitation groups around the country that go into these facilities to see with their own eyes what the facilities are like and hear from the people inside what their demands are and their needs for support. We work on reports that accumulate information and data about the abuses and conditions inside these facilities that we then send to the Office for Civil Rights and Civil Liberties at the Department of Homeland Security and members of Congress, as well as the media and the wider public. We also have storytelling initiatives, a national hotline where people in immigration detention can call us at no cost to them, and pen pal groups around the country. And how did you personally get involved? Um, I spent a year in Argentina after graduating from college where I became really amazed by their immigration laws, which are pretty groundbreaking in that they give people who have migrated to their country the same rights 
that Argentinian citizens who are born in the country have. And that really inspired me. When I came back to the United States, I volunteered at the border in a family detention center and just saw the differences between how people in the country had just spent a year welcome outsiders and the the horrifying conditions of, of what is essentially a prison for, for young children um, and their mothers and fathers at the border. And I, I was blessed to find an organization that is working to abolish the system and move to a more humane way of welcoming immigrants to our country. How many detainees are currently at West County Detention? We're not sure right now at this moment. Historically, there have been around 200 people in immigration detention at that facility, but we know that they have already been transferring many people since July 10th when the sheriff's office announced that it was ending its contract. Um, we've heard probably of about 50 people being transferred or released so far, and it could even be more by now. So we're, we're trying to track that. So what's the process for bailing people out? The ICE office in San Francisco accepts cashier's checks and money orders. We need to give them information of where the person will be staying. The bonds are, are very high, so fundraising for it is, is critical. They can be as high as thirty dollars or $40,000 a person. And unlike in the criminal justice system, that entirety has to be paid up front. Um, you can't pay a percentage. So we're, we're working to fundraise as much as possible so that families can be reunited and people don't have to be transferred to facilities far away and even across state lines. I know that at least one person has been released thanks to your efforts. Uh, my colleague, Julieta Kuznir, was able to speak with Amadelia, whose husband, Jaciel, was released at the end of July. And we are going to play a little of that interview. Bienvenidos. You're listening to KPFA Radio. I'm Julieta Kuznir. And today we are very lucky to have on the line with us Almedelia, who is the wife of Jaciel, the first person freed through the Freedom for Immigrants bond. This is an important bond effort that is happening here in this county, and we want to spread it. Almedelia, muchísimas gracias por estar uh, aquí con nosotros. Queremos platicar contigo. Esto ha sido un tiempo muy importante para ustedes. Por favor, platica. Tell us about what your family has experienced. Yes, it had been difficult since I only relied on him. They took him to a detection center. He was there for 10 months. For the kids, it was been something that was frustrating because he helped them with their homework and everything else. But thank God we are all together again. Over the last 10 months, what contact have you been able to have with your husband? Just over the phone. What did he say about his experience in detention? He said it was not a nice experience at all, and he would never wish it for anyone. Your family was finally reunited after 10 long months due to the contributions of many community members that helped give funds for his bail. What would you say to people listening who are concerned about what is happening? I think it is a big help, especially for us, people who don't have those resources to be able to get out of this situation but our own. 
They helped me with a big part of the bill for my husband. For that, I am very grateful because if it wasn't for these associations and for the work, I would not have been able to pay for my husband's bill. And I invite you all to keep helping because it is an important cause to reunify families. What do you think people should know about what families are, who are experiencing this are going through? Um, even though it is difficult, uh, that the most important thing is to say unify as a family and keep moving forward. And um, my husband says that even if you are in a detection center, it doesn't mean all is lost. You can still have hope and be together. And for those who don't have these fears because they have papers, I ask them to support those who don't. And a little that each person gives can make a big difference. We've been speaking to Amadelia, whose husband was attained for 10 months and was the first person released through the Freedom for Immigrants program through the WCDF Community Fund. They put up the funds for his bond. She's been speaking to us about her experience. So do you know how many other people have been released that you've been able to bond out? Yes, so we have posted the bonds for four people so far and are looking to post a fifth one tomorrow. We're working closely with legal service providers who are letting us know as soon as their clients receive bond. We also are going into the facility every Friday to to visit and hear from folks then if, if they've been given a bond. And the attorneys are working very hard to get people's bond hearings scheduled and represent them at their bond hearings. But unfortunately, not every person in immigration detention is eligible for a bond, which, again, is one of the missing safeguards that we expect when someone is being held in a detention facility. And for those people, this fund is is offering small donations to their families to assist with transportation and phone costs in the case that someone is transferred because we don't want to leave anyone behind. We want the, as a community to support everyone who will be impacted by the end of this contract. So paying bonds isn't the only way to get people out. Your organization is also demanding what you call community alternatives to incarceration. So what do these alternatives look like? Yeah, so we have been placing people in ICE detention with host homes, facilitating those pairings. Many of them are people seeking asylum who have no one in the United States with whom they can stay and fear persecution, torture, possibly death if they're deported to the country of origin. So we pair people in ICE detention with families willing to open up their homes and help offer support, accompaniment connections to legal and other social services and provide a a picture of what we as a society could do to welcome immigrants as opposed to putting them in cages. I know that some people have been released, uh, maybe everybody who's being released has been given these ankle monitors. And I actually learned a fair amount about those by looking at your website. I learned a number of things that I didn't know. Can you talk a little about what those are and what's wrong with that as a way of making sure that people show up for court? Yes, so we are definitely not for uh, so-called alternatives to detention that involve ankle monitors. 
we think of those more as alternative forms of detention because it is still increased surveillance and have huge negative impacts on the quality of life of people who are forced to wear them. ICE can sometimes put ankle monitors on people as a condition for release. And then there's also essentially bail bondsmen that are exploitative and use the desperation of the people in ICE detention to offer to post their bond if they wear a private ankle monitor that they then have to pay a monthly fee of $420 just to supposedly pay for the upkeep of the monitor, although that money doesn't actually go to their bond, which they ultimately have to pay back in full to the private company. So it's very concerning to us. We don't want to move from mass incarceration to mass decarceration. And we know that the criminal justice system is is also battling with that with that conflict as well. So we're we're in coalition coalition with organizations that work in the criminal justice system as well to ensure that when we talk about community alternatives, we mean actually alternatives and not just more electronic monitoring that often has a, a for-profit motive behind it. So how can people contribute to the bail fund? Let's start with that. People are, are more than welcome to go to our website, freedomforimmigrants.org. Right on the homepage, there is a link to the West County Detention Facility Community Fund to donate. Um, and we're really seeking donations as urgently as possible because we want to make sure to, to bond people out before they're transferred. We've heard of transfers all the way as far as to Hawaii. Also on our website, people can learn more about the work that we do if they want to get more involved and volunteer locally. And we have resources available for for volunteers and a map of all the detention facilities in the country. So I really encourage folks to, to check it out. So I want to go back to something that you talked about at the beginning of our conversation, you know, and you were talking about your time in Argentina and that they have a really different way of approaching immigration. And of course, I mean, until fairly recently, this country did also, like, I think we can easily forget that it hasn't actually been standard practice to keep immigrants in jail, um, even people who crossed without authorization. I mean, I personally am in favor of open borders, but I was looking at your website and it says, no, we're not talking about open borders, but we are talking about freedom to migrate. What's the difference between those two things? Yeah, I mean, I think open borders is a is a question of what it would entail. I think I personally also am uh, interested in what that could look like, although in terms of not putting immigrants in jails, you're absolutely right that we've not always done that as a country. The practice really increased dramatically in the 80s, thanks to a couple of different developments. Um, one of them was the heavy lobbying of the private prison industry, seeing that there was a potential market to expand their scope across the country. The 1996 laws that President Clinton passed were devastating and created mandatory detention for people, such as people who come to our border seeking asylum, and also increased the possibility of, of deportation for people who were lawful permanent residents, even if they were convicted of a crime as, as minor as shoplifting. So because of those developments, really, we saw immigration detention increase from maybe about 30 people on any given day to over 42,000 on any given day, which is today's number, um, all within the course of a couple decades. 
given that West County has been the only immigrant detention facility in the Bay Area, now that they are closing, do you know if other facilities might be stepping in to take their place? Or there's been talk about turning Concord Naval Weapons Station into a giant concentration camp for immigrants. Do you know what's happening with that? That, as far as I've heard, is not going to move forward, thankfully. There is an immigration detention facility to the north in Marysville. The Yuba County Jail uh, has, I think, about 150 people in immigration detention that the sheriff is profiting off of. And then to the south, there is a private prison in Bakersfield, um, which holds about 300 people in immigration detention and recently bought a plot of land next to the facility. And we are concerned that they are seeking to expand, which would likely be a violation of the Disney Not Detention Act passed by the California legislator last year, which placed a moratorium on the expansion of immigration detention facilities in the state um, that would be the result of contracts between localities and ICE. So that was a great victory for the state of California. We are hopeful that other states will soon follow suit. And, you know, the, the end of the contract at West County is part of a nationwide trend. I think it was one of maybe eight contracts ending over over two months um, across the country, which is really unprecedented. And I think goes to show that the community, once they find out what these facilities are like, are really stepping up to demand that their local officials do not profit and, and collaborate with this administration in this way. Rebecca Merton is the National Visitation Coordinator for Freedom for Immigrants. Freedomforimmigrants.org is where you can get more information about their work and how to get involved and also contribute to the West County Detention Facility Community Fund to help bail people out before they can be moved to facilities further away and also to help their families with the expenses associated with having a family member in detention. Rebecca, thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. On today's program, we're talking about a really innovative, groundbreaking program at CCSF, that's City College of San Francisco. There are incredible offerings that will be up for all to participate in starting this fall. And we have on the line with us Edgar Torres, who's the chair of the Latin American and Latino Studies program at City College on the line with us. Edgar, thank you so much for joining us. Julieta, thank you so much for having us. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I really would like to point out is that, you know, we have this free City College program for anyone that wants to take a class that's a resident of San Francisco. But because of that, a lot of people are often waiting until the last moment to enroll. And at the current state of affairs at, at this community college, we often lose classes if they do not have or reach a certain threshold. So there's a certain amount of urgency. And a lot of the classes that we teach in the Greater Diversity Collaborative really speak to current issues and current perspectives and often change people's attitudes or students' attitudes about uh, how we look at one another. And and those types of courses are often thought of as alternatives to other courses. And so we normally get our enrollment numbers jumping up 
often after the, or the beginning of classes. And, and by that time, it might be too late for a class like Demystifying the Middle East, which is an IDST course. And uh, it's, you know, obviously with what's going on in the country today, it's a, a wonderful way to get an, you know, a more in-depth perspective of, of uh, what's going on. And uh, so, you know, we want to see those courses continue. You know, we don't want to see them canceled two weeks before school begins. That's the voice of Edgar Torres. We're talking about City College of San Francisco, a really crucial institution that offers some classes that you really can't find anywhere else. Edgar is also someone who has been working hard to make City College accessible for all and has been fighting for something that many may not know about, but City College is now a Hispanic-serving institution. Isn't that correct, Edgar? Yes. Yes, so that means... We finally made it after after a long... I've been here for 16 years, and uh, before I arrived here, we were already trying to to gain that status provided by the Department of Education, which you need 25% students being Hispanic, and of course you need a certain percentage to be full-time students, and a certain percentage of those full-time students have to be on financial aid. But yes, we officially made it, uh, and we're happy about that because we can use that and leverage that to uh, bring students of uh, Hispanic and, uh, and other students as well, anybody that might be interested in, in uh, subject matters and and perspectives that intersect with Latinos. But, you know, I want to talk about a couple of other things. City College of San Francisco now has a pathway that allows us to transfer students to California State Universities in a, in a much easier way, and they fall under an umbrella that we call the social justice degrees. So they're AA transfer degrees in social justice, but they have parentheticals in areas of specialization like ethnic studies like women's studies, like IDST, like Latin American Latino studies. Now, the advantage to that is that if you get your 60 units, when you transfer to the, let's say, the CSU that you'd like to transfer, you don't have to transfer in the same discipline that your transfer degree is in. So you could be transferring in social justice, but going to a CSU and going to administration of justice, going into psychology, something of the like, but it gives you a bump up. It, it allows you to make that, that connection easier, faster, and you carry with you all the GEs that you need in English and in math that allows you to transfer into a CSU. And it's a really wonderful opportunity for people to take a social justice background but be able to go into something that has probably greater applicability in terms of getting a job and get a degree in that. But also, you know, one of the missions that City College has is it has a lot to do with students that come over here that may already have degrees or may not be interested in getting degrees. So, you know, we have a wonderful CTE program for career tech education. We have programs like labor and community studies, which really is applicable to what's going on today in terms of, of unions and and the contributions of unions and, and uh, working class people. So we have class offerings that hopefully will interest people. And, and maybe you never know. Sometimes you get a student that is interested in a particular subject matter, and then they want to take on other classes, and then all of a sudden they become transfer students. So that that is a wonderful gateway for a lot of students that really at, at the beginning may not think about may not be thinking about transferring, but eventually they evolve and they start thinking about other things. I've, I've seen it so many times. I've seen students come in there that just, 
you know, begin in music and they begin in in even sports. And all of a sudden, they start looking around and they recognize that they're buildings that do more than those those particular functions. And and all of a sudden, they're inquiring and. And they take off. And I love that. That, to me, is always a miracle when I see that. I'm speaking to Edgar Torres. He is the chair of the Latin American Latino Studies Department at City College of San Francisco. He's telling us about all the exciting offerings and the reasons why people should connect and look up ccsf.edu and see what classes they can join, since this is a really crucial time to figure out their fall classes. So, Edgar, you've mentioned a few of some of the really unique offerings that City College has. Why don't you tell us about a couple other classes that you feel like like are unique opportunities for people that are either lifelong learners or people who are looking to transfer to a four-year institution may be interested in. Yes, yes. So the, I want to talk a little bit about IDST 29, which is Islam Identity and Culture. And again, you know, the Muslim identity is something that people really are most often ill-informed. And, uh, you know, I, I definitely, you know, I'm... My background, my discipline is anthropology, so I've always been of the perspective that I want to learn about someone else because it often adds to my understanding of myself and how I interact with other people. And so, you know, once again, with what's going on in the United States and everything, this is a wonderful opportunity to look at another part of the world and try to understand their perspective. Another class that's central is uh, ITST 30 Poetry for the People, and again, you know, recognizing that there are various different methods or pathways that you could do to express current concerns and besides uh, traditional classes that just focus on one way of learning things. So this is an interdisciplinary class that takes advantage of not only, you know, written language but spoken word and many other different ways of being able to express different different concerns. And, and a class, it's always been very popular, but I'd love to see it sustained, is our LALS 11, our Drug Wars in the America course. And again, you know, how we view our neighbors is a major concern to this class, how we see ourselves as a uh, contributor to the overall drug problems that we have in the Western Hemisphere is central to this class. And the class has always done really well, but I want to make sure it's a single offering. And every semester, even though it does well, there's always the administrator saying, maybe we should only offer it once a semester and and make sure that the size of the class is double the following semester. But I would love to see it continue being taught every single semester. So I, I want to urge people to consider that class. So those are a couple of classes that are really exciting for folks. Are there any other classes you want to highlight before we transition to give people the information on how to sign up? Well, the backbone of LALS, which is Latin American Latino Studies, is our one course, which is uh, the impact of Latinos living in the United States. And that course is really a U.S. history class, but it promotes the contributions of Latinos to United States history. And you know, the the instructors in that class, all of them are just wonderful. Uh, we currently have 10 sections of it, and I believe seven are closed. But it is transferable. Well, all of our classes, every class that I've spoken about is a baccalaureate class that transfers to any UC and any CSU. But this one fulfills the U.S. history requirement that you need to graduate from a, a California State University. So because of that, it has a, a lot of draw and a lot of appeal. 
but it really changes how we look at the various different minorities that have contributed to U.S. history and made the United States what, what we are today. Those contributions are often omitted, so we, we're really happy about, about this class and, uh, and many others. I also I would like to kind of talk a little bit about a couple of classes that I teach. I teach a, an art history class. Now, it's a, it's a you know, pre-Spanish art history class, but if anybody ever wants to learn about the contributions or aesthetic contributions of the Aztecs or the Mayas or the Incas, that's a wonderful class to take, and it's offered on, in the evenings on Tuesday nights at Mission Center, and uh, a wonderful class. I also teach a, an anthropology class, the Anthropology of Latin America Societies and Cultures of uh, Latin America, and, and that class is kind of an overview, but I focus on gender, and uh, the last portion of the class talks about different social constructs that are surprising to to many people, especially in in southern Mexico in the Oaxaca area where uh, women take on a greater role in certain things that are normally thought of as being, you know, male-dominated. So we begin with the Battle of Puebla and talk about the contributions of of three Oaxacan women to the uh, military efforts that took place back in, in the middle portion of the 19th century and then continue to today and talk about about how gender is a major way of looking at how you know individuals interact with one another. Thank you. So why don't you tell us, Edgar, if there are people listening that live in San Francisco and have always wanted to take a city college class, or maybe they've taken one in the past, but they haven't in a while, or perhaps they have friends or family that I think would really benefit from the offerings at City College, what are their first steps to take? We have such a huge number of classes. The the first thing that I would do is if I was thinking about just something that might be related is I would go to our course schedule. And uh, that's a catalog of different courses. And, of course, I would be immediately interested in the interdisciplinary classes or, the, or departments. And there are many. There's not just IDST. But uh, there are many courses in, in uh, African-American studies and Latin American Latino studies and women's studies that use an interdisciplinary approach to looking at, at different uh, issues that are perspectives. And I would look at, at that. You could get that online. You just have to go to www.ccsf.edu, and I'd scroll through that and, and see if there's something of interest. And, of course, you know, today, as I said earlier, we have Free City College. So if you're a resident of San Francisco, you probably can get into a class for nothing but paying for student fees and and maybe a health fee. So it's a real nominal course. I would definitely look at the activity courses too. If you're thinking about, uh, you know, trying to stay in shape or looking at your diet or something like that, you know, we have wonderful classes, not only in nutrition, but also in, in PE. So there's, you know, wonderful array of different options that you could take more than any other community college by far. And so we are around the corner from our start date. So tell us a little bit about when, if today's the 14th, by when do people need to sign up? As I said earlier, we need students to sign up now. And the reason why is because what I call the options to major GE's educational graduation requirements, which would be, you know, like the big ones would be sociology, psychology, English, math, those are the big ones. People sign up in those, and then often at a much later time, students start looking for classes that fit the GE pattern but are hosted in other departments. 
And those are the, the classes that enroll much later. And so they are often slow enrolling, and we want to make sure that we keep them as options for students. And so enrolling today would be great but the first day of classes is uh, the 20th of August. We've had the pleasure to have Edgar Torres, who is the chair of the Latin American and Latino Studies Department at CCSF, that's City College of San Francisco, on the line with us. He's telling us about all these exciting offerings and also a little bit about why it's important now. If you've thought about it, you may be toyed with the idea, this is the time to make your decision. So muchísimas gracias, Edgar, for taking the time to speak with us. We really look forward to hearing more about some of the things happening at City College in the future. Thank you so much. And up next, we're going to hear some music from John Santos. We're going to offer a pair of tickets to go see his show, Puerto Rico con Alma featuring the John Santos Quintet plus special guests. This show is Friday, August 17th at 8 p.m. at the Freight and Salvage. That's 2020 Addison Street in Berkeley. You can find more info at www.thefreight.org. The tickets will be at will call for the winner. We're going to be giving away a pair of tickets to the fifth caller who calls during this John Santos song. Enjoy. Al terreno infernal Descubrirás el manantial Donde el egoísta se ahoga Y como una fuerte droga Te tumbará de tu pedestal Echa compay Tan profundo y tan bonito Un poder tan exquisito Que existe en cada ser El más grandioso querer Sin ti no hay tú mi hermanito listening to La Raza Chronicles, Cronitas de la Raza. On today's program, we're going to talk about cooking. We're going to talk about food, cultura, as we learn so much through La Comida. We're going to talk about a new cookbook that just came out called Cuba, the cookbook. And we have one of the co-authors in our studio right now, Imogene Tondre. Thank you so much, Imogene, for coming in to speak with us. Thank you, Julieta. So first off, this is a cookbook where you, you know, saw a lot of need. Tell us about how you connected to this project and a little bit about this book. Um, well, I moved to Cuba in 2010. I'm originally from Oakland. And at the time, I noticed right away how, how much people talk about food and how that's just kind of always common topic. And whether it's people telling you what to buy at the market or where you can find good produce. Um, it's just something that, that people talk about a lot. And it wasn't until the next year, 2011, that I became involved in some culinary projects. 
I was one of the participants in a in a delegation. I helped organize a delegation of chefs from the Bay Area that came down to Cuba, and we had workshops, and they created menus and worked with Cuban chefs, and we put on several meals, and they, they used all Cuban ingredients. They didn't bring their own ingredients or anything. So that project got me kind of into this culinary world, and through that I met Madalaine Vasquez-Galvez, who's my co-author of the book, She's published several cookbooks in in Cuba and is one of the co-founders of the first vegetarian restaurant in Cuba. And she has a cooking show on television. And so we became friends and colleagues, and we continued these um, culinary delegations with chefs coming and visiting and cooking together. And then later I did a master's at the University of Havana where I studied food culture and the private sector. So how throughout the last 40 or so years, the changes in the private sector have influenced food culture in Cuba and, and those impacts today. So I would go to Madeleine's house. She has an amazing culinary library, and she helped me with my thesis, and we continued our, our friendship. And then Fiden, the, the publisher, contracted us to write this book, over 350 uh, home cooking recipes. And it's different from other cookbooks in the sense that I've seen other cookbooks recently published here in the States about Cuban food. And a lot of the time, they are featuring a lot of recipes from restaurants, which have their roots in home cooking. But this is really uh, focused on, on home cooking in a way that other cookbooks might not be. That's the voice of Imogene Tondre. We are speaking about the cookbook that she's a co-author of, which is called Cuba, the cookbook. And she's talking to us about what makes it unique. So why don't you walk us through one of the recipes and tell us a little bit of a story behind the dish as well as what makes the recipe different in your cookbook as opposed to maybe others people have seen. Well, one recipe that we've talked about a lot is ajiaco, which is important because it's seen as representative of the people of Cuba because the ingredients come from the different ethnic groups that make up the majority of the Cuban population. So ajiaco is this thick, succulent stew, and those ethnic groups are the indigenous population, the Spanish, and the African influence. It's important to to remember that the indigenous population was pretty much wiped out, weren't especially numerous, and they were dispersed throughout the island, and the Spanish basically eradicated that population. So that means that, of course, the diet becomes distanced from the natural habitat. Example of that is some of the fishing techniques that they used, which weren't especially developed, but they still you know, subsisted on the natural ingredients found on the island, like fish. So fishing was kind of uh, replaced with livestock and a lot of pork, of course, a lot of imports from Spain. And then the third influence is, of course, from the African slaves. You can see that in the use of yams and plantains, taro root, okra. All of those ingredients are still very common today in Cuban cuisine. And so, as I mentioned, this dish, the ajiaco, is seen as kind of the national dish and is representative of those populations because the ingredients that it has, including, you know, the ahi, the pepper, which is indigenous to Cuba, pork and other meat, and then all of these root vegetables like taro root, yams, which came from Africa. It's kind of like the melting pot metaphor that people use here. And Fernando Ortiz, who was a Cuban anthropologist, talks about how Cuba is an ajiaco. And so that's that's one example of a recipe that is very traditional and yet not 
super common because it requires a lot of ingredients, a lot of cooking time. Not everybody has time to make this dish, so it's sometimes reserved for, for special occasions. It's definitely something that is one of the most traditional Cuban dishes. That's the voice of Imogene Tandre. We were talking about Cuba, the cookbook that she's a co-author on and has just been released. It's out and available. People can purchase it online. They can purchase it in their bookstores. So Imogene, when you're thinking about these recipes and you're thinking about Cuban food, which you've spent a lot of time thinking about actually when all your research and studies as well as producing this book, as you're describing Cuba as a place of many mixing of cultures and a lot of shifts that have come reflect the social and economic and political changes that have happened in the region. Um, How would you say your cookbook reflects some of the more recent changes or does it show any recent changes in terms of maybe access to different fruits and vegetables movements around uh, food that are happening on the island or anything else that you've noticed like in the last 15, 20 years, maybe there have been shifts around food in Cuba? Well, we definitely try to make reference to different moments in history. Like I said, the initial mixture of the indigenous population, the Spanish colonizers and African slaves kind of made up the Cuban population, but it's really much more than that. And in the introduction, we talk about how it's been migrations and history more than geography that have affected Cuban food. So you know, we, we talk about other immigrant groups, like after the revolution in Haiti, some French colonizers came over to the eastern side of the island and were uh, very key in, in developing both coca and coffee plantations. Another influence comes from the Chinese, who came to Cuba as indentured servants as early as 1847. And they were instrumental in establishing these first small food stands uh, called fondas. Some of them eventually turned into larger restaurants, but most of them were just these little stands near the port so that they could you know, cater to the sailors coming in and out. And while most of the, even the Chinese-owned fondas featured more fusion or Spanish-style food, some of the ingredients from the Chinese, like bok choy, scallions, spinach, these ingredients became incorporated into the recipes and are very important in Cuban food today. There is a Chinatown in Havana. It's hard to find very authentic Chinese food. A lot of it is mixed with more Cuban-style food, but, but those influences are there. Another example is that there's documentation that rice was cultivated in Cuba as early as 1600, but it's really the Chinese who popularized it. Rice is a huge part of the diet in Cuba today. Uh, to give you an idea, with the ration systems, we get five pounds of rice per person per month. And people eat you know, large portions of rice every day. In terms of other migrations, it's also important to talk about the time between 1902 and 1959. This is when Cuba had symbolic independence. Cuban scholars refer to it as a neo-colony because, of course, after the Spanish-Cuban-American War, the U.S. was very much in control of all the economy and political system. And at the time, there was, of course, this U.S. presence on the island and an exchange of a lot of culture, including food culture. Um, You can still see that with some of the language. So Cubans don't say torta or pastel. They say cake de cumpleaños. And other words like, you know, sandwich or hot dogs and things like that, you definitely see as left over from that time period. And something else that's really interesting that we were studying when we were researching for this book, during that time, of course, the U.S. was exporting a lot of kitchen appliances to Cuba. And 
things like pressure cookers and mix masters would come accompanied by little pamphlets with suggested recipes. And some of them, we can still find them because, as I mentioned, Madalane, my co-author, has an excellent culinary library where she's set aside as, as many documents and books as she's ever got her hands on. But you see these recipes, and of course, they talk about apricots and plums and cherries and all of these fruits that do not grow in Cuba. And again, that's another step away from the natural habitat. And this is an issue that hundreds of years of colonization in one form or another means that Cuba's food sovereignty is very challenging because there's been this emphasis on these ingredients that are imported. And then, of course, after the, the revolution, there was no more U.S. presence. And starting in the 1960s, because of the political ties with the Soviet Union, that also influenced the food culture to a degree. We have recipes in our book of borscht soup, of beef stroganoff, and these are recipes that are not especially common now, but were during the time of these political ties between the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And it's interesting because I feel like you talk to any Cuban of a certain age born within that time period, and, and they'll, you know, they'll sometimes be nostalgic about these Soviet products. They'll say, like, ah, cuando los rusos, no, te acuerdas del, del chocolate ese, no, no, cuando los rusos, talking about when, when there were these other ingredients on the market. And so, you know, talking about those different times in history, I think, is important. And then later, when, of course, the Soviet Union collapsed and Cuba was faced with a huge economic crisis, known as the Special Period, there was a lot of creativity and people were starving and there was malnourishment and a lot of problems. There was very low food production. And so people came up with very innovative recipes. And we have some of those in here as well because, again, they might not be the most sophisticated of recipes. Of course, you're working with very few ingredients and horrible food scarcity issues. But but I thought it was really important to include them as as a nod to the to the creativity that came with the necessity of the time. So there's, you know, notes um, on a few recipes like yogurt cake or cracker omelets or something that says this became popular during the special period of the 1990s. And then in terms of, of what makes this different than other cookbooks, I would just say that we tried really hard to focus on both traditional f- recipes because... Sadly, some of these recipes have been lost because either the ingredients are hard to to get a hold of or another issue, when you think about it, a generation ago, a lot of women were were at home and and had time to make these elaborate dishes and now have been incorporated into the workforce. I talk about Madalena's food library so much because sometimes it's hard to get your hands on old cookbooks. In Cuba, it's common to print a couple hundred copies of a book. And if you don't get it <laughs> at the time it comes out, you might never track it down again. So it's not like other places where the, the access to information is, is especially easy. So we, we wanted that balance of these traditional recipes that we want to really rescue and preserve and also some of the newer adaptations. One example in the, we have a salad chapter and salads are an important part of the Cuban diet, but they're not prevalent in the in the Cuban home. The Cuban style is to eat everything on the same plate, arroz, frijoles, meat, everything together. And your salad could be a slice of avocado. It could be tomato and cabbage and carrot with a little dressing. But it's not, there's not a separate salad course. It's right there on the same plate. And you'll hear Cubans say like, oh, I don't eat salad or I eat tomato, but that's it. 
So this whole salad mm. chapter, a lot of these recipes came from El Eco Restaurant El Bambú, which is the restaurant that Madeleine co-founded at the Botanical Garden. And at the time, they started incorporating all of these edible flowers, hibiscus and, and pumpkin seeds and, and new ingredients that were never a part of the Cuban diet into the recipes because they got them all from the Botanical Garden. Now, during the 90s, when there was a horrible economic crisis and people were hungry, this restaurant was very popular. People would go to this buffet and eat vegetables like they never had before. And so in the intro to the salad chapter, we say that these are not all typically found in Cuban homes, but that they were created at a specific moment in history at this place, the Eco Restaurant El Bambú, located at the Botanical Garden. And so, you know, there's a mix. We tried to have both the most traditional and some of the more unique, less common recipes. The last chapter is our guest chefs. And so we have both Cuban chefs who live in Cuba and others who live in the United States and England around the world and their interpretations of some Cuban recipes. And we're talking with Imogene Tandre, who's co-author of Cuba, the cookbook. And she's walking us through some of the different things people can read about and learn about, so not just learn in terms of delicious food in the kitchen, but also a little bit of history and context. Why don't you walk us through some of the other chapters in your book that people can explore further once they get a copy? Definitely. So the book starts with the Cuban pantry, La Despensa. Basically, that's just a list of the ingredients so that anybody could either track these ingredients down or at least understand what they are. Some of them are, of course, ingredients that people will be familiar with, but we talk about how they're prepared in Cuba, the types of cheese that you have in Cuba, the chicken, the bread that's most common. Others are more specific, like culantro or Cuban oregano specifically. We also mention a couple of cooking techniques because ban marie or baño maria is very common, but not everyone knows what that is and how, how do you do that. I, we also talk about the pressure cookers, which I mentioned before. That's a very common kitchen appliance in any Cuban home. And that's something we had to adjust for. So we would write notes in the recipes with a pressure cooker. It's this amount of time. Without a pressure cooker, you have to cook longer. Tasajo, which is dried beef, which originally was dried horse meat. We have that in some of the recipes and, and of course, have to describe where that came from and, and how important that was in historical development of, of Cuban food. Then the next chapter is appetizers and snacks. Snacks you'd find in the Cuban home and, and then also appetizers that are very common in, in restaurants these days. Soups, then rice. Like I mentioned, rice is a huge part of the diet. And so we have a whole chapter dedicated to rice. Then pastas and pizzas. People ask me, well, how is that Cuban food? It's not technically, but it has become so incorporated into the diet that we wanted to include it. It started in the 1970s when the Soviet Union was exporting wheat to Cuba, and people started eating pastas and pizza like crazy because the state set up this chain of pizza parlors, basically. And then that later was mirrored with the private sector. It's very common to see pizza stands all over the place, and you see people walking down the street eating a pizza. I've heard kind of food scholars talk about the danger that, that young people prefer, seem to prefer pizza over traditional Cuban food. I don't think it's in danger of, of displacing traditional Cuban food. I think it's also a, an issue of accessibility. It's one of the fastest and cheapest options. So if you're on the go and you need a quick snack, it's a very logical option. But people have also started making homemade pizzas. So we decided that should definitely be in the book. Next is the fish, poultry, and meat chapter. And Cuban food is very meat-centered. There was This is not a new thing, but something that's always been very prevalent. There was a, a traveler 
who came to, to the island, I think, 1800 and documented Cubans eat meat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Well, it's not to that point now, but it, people really enjoy meat, especially pork. Pork is something, you know, carne puerco, you have to have that on Christmas and New Year's. It's a very traditional part of those kind of festive meals. Um, and then we have a chapter on vegetables and legumes, an egg chapter, because like I mentioned, when, when meat is not available, then kind of the next best animal protein is eggs, and people will, will commonly have a fried egg or an omelet for dinner, you know, along with rice and beans and vegetables and fried plantains and whatnot. Then the salad chapter that I already talked about, sauces and dressings, it's very important. Cubans really like kind of moist, juicy food. There's even a common expression people say, mojar el arroz. So what do we use to to moisten the rice. So if you don't have a bean soup to pour all over the rice, then you want to have at least some kind of juicy dressing that goes over the meat dish, but can also be poured over the rice. So the sauces and dressings chapter and sweets and desserts is also very important. Of course, Cuba has been a huge sugar producer since colonization, and that really makes its way into the diet. The editor was reviewing some of our recipes and, and wrote back, oh, this must be a mistake. There couldn't possibly be this much sugar. And we said, no, it's not a mistake. This is the traditional recipe. And of course, readers can adjust to taste. But Cubans eat a lot of sugar. And that's one of the things that even when there was nothing else, when there was a horrible economic crisis that I've spoken about, would have sopa de gallo or sugar water to get some calories and energy. And, and still today, people consume a lot of sugar. In the ration systems, individuals get five pounds of white sugar and three pounds of brown sugar per month, per person. And so that, that's something that, that, and not just the amount of sugar, but sweets in general, is, it's important. You know, after a big family dinner, you want to have dessert. So we have lots of dessert recipes. And then we have drinks. Of course, Cuba is the birthplace of the, the mojito and the daiquiri and many other mixed drinks as well as fruit smoothies and things like that. So we have that recipe. And then the last chapter is the, the guest chefs, which I mentioned those contributions from various chefs. So that's kind of a, an overview of, of the book. Imogene Tondra is giving us an overview of the book she co-authored, Cuba, the Cookbook. So it sounds like an exciting way to get to know Cuba, a little bit of history, culture, and also, of course, food. How can people get their hands on this book? Well, you can go to your local bookstore. Um, I always encourage people to buy books at bookstores so that bookstores continue to exist. Um, I think it's at several bookstores here in the Bay Area. If not, you can always suggest that they order it. The other option is, of course, online uh, through Amazon. And yeah, it's, it's Fiden is the publisher. So any of those options. Imogene Tandre, thank you so much for taking the time out. You are visiting for just a short amount of time doing this book tour. And we're lucky to have you here in the studios to talk about your book, Cuba, the Cookbook. Muchísimas gracias. Gracias a usted. This is La Rosa Chronicles, bringing you a calendar of upcoming community events. The Brava Theater prevents Bobby Cespedes' band in concert with Vallejo Seco and special guest John Santos. This show will be this Saturday, August 18th at 8 p.m. You can find out more information at thebrava.org. Also on Saturday night, Afro-Peruvian concert Atajo de San Francisco with master Miguel Bayumbroso. This is a group spreading knowledge about La Danza de Negritos, a one-of-a-kind tradition from the district of El Carmen in Chincha, Peru. There's also a master class that day that is free from 10 to noon. This will be happening at 
La Peña, on Saturday, August 18th, and you can find out more at lapeña.org. Comedian Bill Santiago will be having a show September 7th through the 15th, and this show will be called The Immaculate Big Bang. He's a comedian who mixes all things, and his show will be Friday through Saturday night, and you can find out more at www.theexit.org. That's the theater it will be at. The Exit. Exit Theater on 156 Eddy Street in San Francisco. On Friday, August 17th at 8 p.m., John Santos will be playing a show called Puerto Rico con Alma featuring the John Santos Quintet plus special guests. You can find out more at thefreight.org. There will also be a Fandango on Friday the 17th where people can enjoy Son Carocho at La Peña. That is free and it's at, you can find out more at lapeña.org. There's also an exhibit that just opened at Galeria de la Raza called Comida es Medicina. And this exhibition consists of a wide variety of artistic forms including paintings, screenplays, videos, and zines. And it will be up until November 2nd. It is free. Check it out while you can. It's an incredible exhibit. If you have any event listings you'd like to send our way, please email us at lasrasachronicles at kpfa.org. Muchísimas gracias por estar con nosotros. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get involved with our collective, send us event listings, or support our show in any way, you can be in touch at Chronicles at kpfa.org. You can also like us on Facebook. That's La Raza Chronicles on Facebook. And you can also follow and share our show on SoundCloud. That's La Raza Chronicles on SoundCloud. Muchísimas gracias y buenas noches. Thank you.